All right, welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, where we are opening this evening with a Hindu hymn for our usual didactic purposes. I should first give a shout out to the artist. I found that online on YouTube, an artist by the name of Sri Ram Bhajan. Uh, that's actually uh, an hour-long version of the hymn. We just played the first opening two minutes of it. And the name of the hymn is the Ram Doon, or Hymn to Rama, more formally known by its longer name, the Ragupati Ragava Raja Ram. And it is particularly associated with Mohandas Gandhi, one of his favorite hymns and sung during his various campaigns for Indian independence in the 1930s and 40s. And the reason we're playing it on this podcast is because just a few days ago, on October 2nd, Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, actually had an op-ed in the New York Times on the anniversary of Gandhi's birth way back in 1869, entitled, Why India and the World Need Gandhi. And if it is not immediately apparent to you, dear listener, why Narendra Modi, thusly invoking Mohandas Gandhi, is sickening hypocrisy, well, you're going to get an earful about it on this podcast. Don't you worry. (laughs) And uh, in this op-ed, Modi actually invokes another Hindu hymn, which was associated with Gandhi and his movement, Vaishnava Janoto, or roughly translated as um, the followers of Vishnu or the devotees of Vishnu. And it's extremely telling that he invoked what was probably Gandhi's second favorite hymn, as opposed to his favorite one, the one which he actually penned a verse to, which was the one that we opened with, which Modi did not mention, the Ram Dun. Because in the special version of the Ramdun, which Gandhi actually penned to send a message to his followers and to the people of India, he wrote the following line, all names of God refer to the same supreme being, including Ishvara and the Muslim Allah. Ishvara being the uh, traditional concept of Godhead in Hindu theology. So this is exemplifying the pluralist and universalist spirit of Gandhi, which is absolutely inimical, antithetical to the exclusivist and chauvinist attitude of Narendra Modi. Narendra Modi's propaganda exploitation of Mohandas Gandhi, and that is exactly what it is, is cynical to the point of being downright Orwellian. That's the case we're going to be making this evening. Before we do, I just need to get a couple of things out of the way. Gandhi has long been sanctified, and uh, there is growing backlash to this now, particularly in progressive circles. And I want to make clear here that I don't um, subscribe to the cult of great men. There are a lot of things about Gandhi that I actually find very appealing Certainly his, um, his ethic of, you know, local village-based democracy um, had a, uh, a certain anarchist sensitivity to it, which I find very appealing. And while I am not an absolute or dogmatic pacifist, 
of the Gandhian kind. I nonetheless do believe in the power of nonviolence. And I do think that his uh, ability to inspire mass nonviolent action, which was ultimately successful, was a genuine inspiration to the world. Nonetheless, I recognize that controversies which have emerged in recent years about Gandhi have, you know, taken his reputation down a peg. And there certainly does need to be a, uh, a rethinking of this tendency to, you know, uphold him as a paragon of human perfection. George Orwell, in his 1949 essay, Reflections on Gandhi, opens with the witty line that saints should always be judged guilty until they are proved innocent. <laughs> And certainly over the past couple of years, an ugly side to Gandhi has sort of, uh, you know, emerged from history. Most recently, there's been the movement in Ghana for the removal of a statue of Gandhi, which has been erected in the capital, Accra. And those who are uh, calling for the statue's removal are particularly remembering some truly ugly things that Gandhi said when he was a very young man in South Africa. Now, today it's remembered that, you know, when he was a young lawyer in South Africa, and remember, we're going back more than a century now. We're going back to, um, you know, the early years of the 20th century here. And Gandhi's remembered in this period, you know, there was the famous incident where he was thrown off the train in Durban for, uh, you know, sitting in a white compartment and for his petitioning after that to have Indian immigrants in South Africa at least removed from the racial segregation system. But the recent comments which have come to light, or the comments which have come to light recently, I should say, because like I say, they're well over a century old at this point. He basically was not trying to build solidarity with the blacks of South Africa to oppose the incipient apartheid regime, but rather trying to appeal to the white rulers with the notion that the Indians are actually higher in the racial hierarchy than the, quote, savages, end quote, and native Africans, quote unquote. Now, obviously, this is ugly stuff. I would like to think that um, Gandhi rethought these ideas. Like I said, he was a very young man when he said this stuff. He lived a long life. I would like to think that by the time he was, you know, kidding his stride as an independence leader in India years later, that he had rethought these ugly sentiments, (laughs) One hopes he did. On the other hand, as far as I know, not being a scholar by any means, but as far as I know, he never actually specifically repudiated those ideas either. And even many years later, as a leader of the Indian independence movement, he had something of a rivalry with B.R. Ambedkar, who was the advocate for the Dalits, or the so-called untouchables. Now, both Gandhi and Ambedkar wanted to eliminate discrimination against the Dalits and wanted to do away with their so-called, you know, untouchable status and fought for their political empowerment. But Ambedkar was really um, an abolitionist when it came to the caste system. He just wanted to have it done away with altogether. And uh, Gandhi seems to have, uh, you know, equivocated on this question somewhat, which led to uh, a certain rivalry between the two leaders with certainly Ambedkar taking the more, the more forthright and progressive position, acknowledged, uh, well, if you've ever uh, read Orwell's essay about Gandhi, you know that he refers to him as a medievalist. <laughs> 
and uh, refers to his pacifism as a siren song, particularly as regarding uh, what our position should be towards the Axis in the Second World War. Uh, The great Indian poet and independence advocate Rabindranath Tagore raised similar criticisms that Gandhi was backward-looking, even though they kind of had a rapport. They were also rivals and mutually critical of each other to a certain extent. But Orwell closes his essay by writing that compared with the other, this was just after Gandhi's assassination, by the way, when he was writing this, compared with the other leading political figures of our time, how clean a smell he has managed to leave behind. So, uh, yeah, okay, there needs to be a reconsideration of Gandhi after, you know, the generations of him being sanctified and held up as, you know, a paragon of human virtue. I'm a little bit afraid that now there's, uh, you know, going to be a reaction in the other direction. And, you know, Gandhi bashing has suddenly become very popular on the left. (laughs) He was a flawed human being. And I'm basically with Dylan. Don't follow leaders. Watch the parking meters. Again, I don't believe in the cult of great men. But uh, all this is kind of um, just an aside to what the critical point is here. And the critical point is, uh, once again, that um, Narendra Modi's invocation and propaganda exploitation of Gandhi is sickening in the extreme and is utterly, utterly Orwellian. No matter your opinion of Gandhi, that's the case. Narendra Modi is not in the tradition of Gandhi, but in the tradition of the people who killed him. And this is not just my opinion. This is historical fact, as I shall amply document. Now, for starters... A little obvious context on why Narendra Modi chose to place this op-ed in the New York Times at this particular moment, which has to do with the growing persecution of Muslims in India, which is now actually escalating to the level of mass detention. Extremely terrifying. And it's quite notable that in Modi's op-ed on October 2nd, There is not a single mention of Muslims or Islam. The group Genocide Watch has just issued two alerts for India, two different regions of India, where they see an escalation toward genocide to be in its incipient phases. One is better known than the other. The first one is Kashmir, where, as we're all aware, This is a Muslim-majority state in the north of India, which, since the division of India into India and Pakistan in 1947, has been divided, with half of it falling under Indian control and the other half under Pakistani control. Uh, There have been wars fought over it already between India and Pakistan. Obviously, an extremely volatile situation. In recognition of this, The Indian Constitution actually um, included provisions granting Kashmir a high degree of autonomy. A couple of months ago, Modi, unilaterally exercising extraordinary powers, had that constitutional autonomy revoked. And Kashmir, as we may imagine, exploded into protest. Modi uh, has cut off internet access in the region plunging all of Kashmir into information darkness, so to speak. And his security forces have been, you know, mixing it up with protesters. Thousands have been detained and they're languishing behind bars. The other situation noted by Genocide Watch 
it has unfortunately received far less media play in the outside world, and that is Assam, across India to the east, where the, uh, the local state authorities imposed a, a deadline earlier this year of August 31st for residents to prove that they are legal citizens of India. And a, a cutoff point of 1971 was imposed. It seems a little bit arbitrary. But if people could not prove their residence in India before 1971, they were going to be uh, treated as illegal aliens, quote-unquote, as the term is used in this country, in the United States. And overwhelmingly, this seems to be um, aimed at the Muslims of Assam, who are held by the, uh, the ruling Hindu nationalists there as uh, Bangladeshi immigrants, even if they've actually been living in Assam for generations. A very analogous situation to that faced by the Rohingya in Burma, who have been rendered stateless by Burmese government policy. And even if they've been living in Burma for generations, are now deemed to be uh, Bangladeshi immigrants and have been ethnically cleansed from Burma. And now many thousands are languishing in refugee camps in Bangladesh. And the authorities there don't consider them to be Bangladeshi citizens either, consider them to be Burmese citizens. So they've been left stateless. So it seems, or the fear has been raised by Genocide Watch, that Something similar may be in the works in Assam, and certainly the local authorities in Assam have been uh, developing a massive detention camp system for uh, rounding up Muslim residents who are now suddenly deemed to be um, undocumented aliens. This is the kind of thing which has been going on in Modi's India. Under the rule of Modi and his Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, BJP, Some other recent news clips from Modi's India. Very interestingly, on October 3rd, the day after Gandhi's birthday and the day after Modi had his op-ed in the New York Times, Gandhi's resting place was vandalized by presumed Hindu nationalist extremists. The monument to Gandhi where his ashes are kept at the the town of Rewa in Madhya Pradesh was vandalized and some of the ashes stolen and the monument defaced in green paint with the word traitor. And this is very key. The fact that Gandhi is being accused of being a traitor here indicates that this was almost certainly the work of Hindu nationalists who during his life and still today viewed him as having betrayed Hinduism, despite the fact that he was a devout Hindu, for seeking coexistence with the Muslims. On October 1st, the day before Gandhi's birthday and the day before Modi had his op-ed in the New York Times, Mohan Bhagwat, the leader of the RSS, or um, uh, National Patriotic Organization, which is the social movement from which Modi's BJP emerged, reiterated his position that India is a Hindu rashtra, or nation, calling it non-negotiable. And while Modi and the BJP have been in power these past few years, and this ideology of Hindu nationalism, or Hindutva, has become more and more hegemonic, there has been a growing wave of lynchings and violent attacks on Muslims and Dalits and other minorities within India. And on October 4th, 
it was announced that a uh, criminal investigation has been opened by India's central authorities into 30 writers, intellectuals, and prominent figures who had written an open letter to Modi expressing concern over the growing incidence of mob lynchings. There's been a bit of a to-do here in New York City this past week where there was a protest outside the United Nations where Modi was scheduled to speak, where a, one of the organizers, a Rutgers University professor by the name of Audrey Trushke, stated the historical fact that the ideology of Hindutva was directly inspired by European fascism and particularly by the Nazis. Quote, early Hindutva's founders openly admired Hitler. They praised Hitler's treatment of the Jewish people in Germany as a good model for dealing with India's Muslim minority, end quote, for which, of course, she's been taking a lot of criticism. But um, she happens to be precisely accurate. All right, so now we're going to have to uh, delve into a little bit of historical background. <clears throat> the RSS, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce for Hindu, but the basically National Patriotic Organization, the ideological grandfather of India's ruling BJP, was indeed openly inspired by European fascism at the time of its founding in the 1930s. One of its founders, M.S. Galwalkar, wrote in his 1939 book, We, Our Nation Defined, quote, that Germany's purging of its Semitic races was a good lesson for Hindustan, meaning India, to learn and profit by, end quote. With respect to India's minorities, he wrote, quote, from this standpoint, sanctioned by the experience of shrewd old nations, the foreign races of Hindustan must either adopt the Hindu culture and language, must learn to respect and hold in reverence Hindu religion, must entertain no idea but those of the glorification of the Hindu race and culture, i.e. of the Hindu nation, and must lose their separate existence to merge in the Hindu race, or may stay in the country wholly subordinated to the Hindu nation, claiming nothing, deserving no privileges, far less any preferential treatment, not even citizens' rights, end quote. Now, <clears throat> shortly after this, Mohandas Gandhi enters the picture. And, uh, you know, I pointed out before that you know, it's a, uh, a misconception that Gandhi's hunger strikes were an effort to try to pressure Britain into getting out of India. Not the case. His campaigns of civil disobedience, his boycotts, the famous March to the Sea in 1930, these were all aimed at pressuring the British. His hunger strikes were not. Because, I mean, he basically felt that the British didn't care if he lived or died. The British would have been very happy if he starved himself to death. His hunger strikes were aimed at trying to pressure his own people, his fellow Indians. And they were overwhelmingly hunger strikes for Hindu-Muslim unity and to protest the Hindu-Muslim communal violence, which was breaking out in these years. And particularly, his last hunger strike in 1948 was to oppose the partition of India into the states of India and Pakistan. And his two great opponents on this question, well, one was Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the Muslim League at the time and the founder of the state of Pakistan, an advocate of partition, 
and the RSS, the Hindu fundamentalist organization, which was behind much of the communal Hindu on Muslim violence during this period. I'm going to read a little excerpt from the book Gandhi, His Life and Message for the World by Lewis Fisher, his um, official biographer or hagiographer, we might say. (laughs) It's definitely something of a hagiography. Not much criticism of Gandhi in this book, but uh, nonetheless an important historical document. So I'm going to read a passage from September of 1947 when the partition of India was underway and in the midst of horrific Hindu-Muslim communal violence, which Gandhi was doing his best to oppose. Gandhi now developed inordinate energy, undertaking daily inspections of refugee concentrations in the vicinity of the city of Delhi and touring its riotous wards several times a day. It rained on September 20th. Quote, I think of the poor refugee in Delhi, he told his prayer meeting, in both East Punjab in the Indian Republic and West Punjab, Pakistan, today while it is raining, I have heard that a convoy 57 miles long is pouring into the Indian Union from West Punjab. It makes my brain real to think that that can be. Such a thing is unparalleled in the history of the world, and it makes me, as it should make you, hang my head in shame. End quote. He was not exaggerating. The 57-mile-long convoy was one of several in the Great Migration, in which 15 million unhappy human beings trekked hundreds of miles away from their homes toward distress, disease, and death. Out of the part of Punjab assigned to Pakistan, moving east in the general direction of Delhi, came millions of Hindus and Sikhs fleeing the knives and clubs of Muslims. Out of the Indian Union, moving toward Pakistan, came millions of Muslims, fearing the daggers and lathis, or clubs, of Hindus and Sikhs. They fled in their bullock carts, or if they had never owned one, or it was taken away from them, they walked. Whole families walked in the dust for weeks. Adults carrying children, men carrying the weak in baskets, carrying the aged on their shoulders. Frequently, the sick and decrepit were abandoned by the road and left to die. Cholera, smallpox, and similar killers scourged the migrant hordes. Corpses and vultures circling over them marked their route. Sometimes two hostile convoys advancing in opposite directions met and, despite flagging energies and myriad cares, continued their senseless vendetta on tilled fields. The Punjab, granary of India, starved, its precious growing grain stamped into the earth by millions of weary feet. The Indian Union felt the pinch of hunger. The Nehru government set up camps outside Delhi to catch the migrants before they could inundate the city. But endless thousands escaped through the cordons, looted shops, slept in doorways, courtyards, gutters, temples, and deserted homes, and disorganized the life of the capital and the government. Reduced to primitive living, the displaced persons yielded to primitive passions. In this city of the mad and the dead, Mahatma Gandhi tried to spread the gospel of love and peace. He planted himself athwart the torrent of boiling passion and spoke with cold reason. Molested Muslims, he said, must stay. Quote, Hindus and Sikhs who molested them discredited their religion and did irreparable harm to India. He ventured into a meeting of 500 members of the, all right, let me try to pronounce it, Rashtriya Sevak Sangha, or RSS, a fiercely anti-Muslim, highly disciplined, 
paramilitary body of militant Hindus and told them they would kill Hinduism by their intolerance. Pakistan atrocities were no justification for Hindu atrocities. Quote, there is no gain in returning evil for evil. End quote. He was indeed a friend of the Muslims and also of the Hindus and Sikhs. Quote, both sides appear to have gone crazy. End quote. After the speech, he invited questions. Does Hinduism permit the killing of an evildoer? An RSS member asked. One evildoer cannot punish another, Gandhi replied. All day, he crisscrossed the city, rushing into areas where he heard that bloodthirsty mobs were gathering. The angry human sea parted as he walked among them, face smiling, palms touching in the traditional blessing. The waves of anger subsided. At prayer meetings, he collected money for blankets for refugees. In refugee camps, he told the inmates to spin and clean their premises. Every evening, he asked his prayer congregation, consisting chiefly of Hindus, whether anybody objected to the reading of some verses from the Quran. Usually there were two or three objectors. Would the objectors nevertheless remain quiet during the readings? They would. Would the majority resent the objectors? They would not. Then he read the verses. This was a living lesson in tolerance and discipline. Everybody could not agree with everybody else, but they could be nonviolent despite their disagreement. And for such efforts, Gandhi was killed. Just a few months after the episode I just related took place, on January 30th, 1948, Mohandas K. Gandhi was assassinated by Natharam Godze, a Hindu nationalist and an RSS militant. All right, and now we um, jump forward a couple of generations. Well, first we should note that in 1980, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janata Party, or Indian People's Party, now the ruling party of India under Narendra Modi, was founded as the political arm of the RSS. And one small historical irony, perhaps, is that Mohandas Gandhi and Narendra Modi are both from the same state. They're both from the state of Gujarat in India's northwest, which was the scene of um, a truly horrific, perhaps even genocidal, outburst of anti-Muslim violence in the early months of 2002 when Narendra Modi was the governor of the state, the so-called Gujarat pogrom, sometimes called the Gujarat genocide. Just to briefly uh, go over the details, that actually uh, the sparking incident concerned the contested holy site of Ayodhya in Uttar Pradesh, which by tradition was the birthplace of Rama, the ancient Hindu king and culture hero who was held to be an incarnation of the god Vishnu. And centuries earlier, back during the, uh, the Mughal Empire, the period of Muslim rule in India, a mosque was built on the site. In 1992, Hindu militants demolished the mosque. Then we jump forward 10 years to um, February of 2002, when Hindu worshippers who were returning from Ayodhya to the state of Gujarat had their train carriage attacked by Muslim militants, and 57 of them were killed. And in response to this, Hindu militants in the state of Gujarat, then ruled by Narendra Modi as governor and his um, BJP, 
carried out a massive pogrom across the state of Gujarat, attacking the homes and businesses of Muslims, ultimately leaving over the course of several weeks approximately 1,000 dead, overwhelmingly Muslims who were set upon by Hindu mobs. Now, Modi was accused at the time of abetting the mob violence, with his police not only failing to interfere, but actively directing the attacks. Modi was eventually cleared of charges by a high-level investigation and went on to become the Prime Minister of India in 2014. So the ideology of Hindutva, the ideology that was behind the partition of India in 1947, the ideology that was behind the assassination of Mohandas Gandhi the following year, is now the ruling ideology of India under Narendra Modi. And hardly surprisingly, under his rule, Hindu fundamentalist militants and extremists have felt that they've had a green light to carry out violent attacks and lynchings on Muslims, Dalits, Adivasis, or tribal peoples, and other minorities. And now it has actually escalated to the point that a concentration camp system for Muslims is beginning to emerge in India. And it actually appears to be going in the same direction, ironically, as what the Chinese authorities have been doing in uh, Xinjiang, just across the Himalayas from Kashmir. And I say ironically, of course, because India and China are rivals. With the utmost hypocrisy, Modi has actually protested the mass detention of Muslims in Xinjiang, and Xi Jinping has protested the persecution of Muslims in Kashmir and Assam, with sickening hypocrisy on both their parts, because they mirror each other. Obviously, India is, even now, something of a democracy, even if it seems to be teetering on the edge of dictatorship. China is not. So the situation is far more advanced in China in terms of escalation toward genocide. But nonetheless, India is now going in the same direction. And they are starting to mirror each other more and more. Absolutely terrifying. And making it all the more terrifying and surreal and Orwellian is that amidst all of this, Modi gets away with this public relations job on the op-ed page of the New York Times, cloaking himself in the legacy of Mohandas Gandhi. Modi invoking Gandhi is like Donald Trump issuing the requisite homilies about Martin Luther King on MLK Day. Except it's even worse. (laughs) All right, just to point out, because I don't want to play into the media bashing atmosphere, the New York Times is the so-called newspaper of record. And one of the things that they do is they make their op-ed page open to world leaders. And for better or worse, and I would submit it's quite significantly for worse, Narendra Modi is the leader of one of the biggest and most important countries on earth. I mean, I acknowledge that this is something of an editorial dilemma for the New York Times. On one hand, one hopes that there are editors at the Times who get that this is sinister propaganda and that they're, you know, abetting it by giving him a forum for it. On the other hand, what are you supposed to do? Not let the Prime Minister of India run a, an op-ed in the New York Times? So I acknowledge it's something of an editorial dilemma for the New York Times. But I will say that at a minimum, even if they feel that, you know, they can't um, 
Deep Six Narendra Modi from their op-ed page. At a minimum, they should be um, opening up the op-ed page to opposition voices from India who oppose Modi and are calling for tolerance and pluralism and multiculturalism within India and oppose the reigning ideology of Hindutva and the incipient fascist state which is emerging under Narendra Modi. And I'll just point out by way of example, just because I'm sure that, uh, you know, the editors of the New York Times op-ed page are listening to my podcast, that, uh, for example, they could offer um, an op-ed to Tista Setalvad, who is um, the leading activist in India who has been seeking justice and accountability in the Gujarat massacre after all of these years and defending India's secular tradition, which is now under attack. So how about it, New York Times? Can we see an op-ed from Tista Setalvad? I look forward to reading it. And the last thing I'm going to say before I sign off is to my fellow American lefties and progressives, I continue to be appalled that some of you are supporting the Democratic candidate for president and Hawaii congressperson Tulsi Gabbard because she talks a facile good line on cannabis legalization and, uh, you know, her her anti-war position and so on, her hypocritical anti-war position, I will add, because she has no problem with bombing Muslim terrorists, quote unquote, which really means, of course, bombing Muslim civilian populations in Syria and Iraq and the like. She just opposes what she calls, quote unquote, wars of regime change because she likes dictators like Bashar Assad and would-be dictators like Narendra Modi. She is Narendra Modi's, probably his best friend on Capitol Hill. And before you rally around Tulsi Gabbard, ask her what she has to say about the massive detention system which is now emerging from Muslims in Kashmir and Assam under the rule of Narendra Modi. And whether you are a Gandhi booster or a Gandhi basher, it is absolutely imperative to recognize that Narendra Modi's cynical exploitation of the legacy of Mohandas Gandhi needs to be forthrightly opposed and rejected. And the world urgently needs to pay some attention and bring some pressure to bear in the absolutely frightening escalation towards mass detention and potentially genocidal solutions where the Muslims of Kashmir and Assam are concerned, and potentially the rest of India as well. So, once again, don't believe the hype. Narendra Modi is not the inheritor of the tradition of Mohandas Gandhi. Narendra Modi is the inheritor of the tradition of the assassin of Mohandas Gandhi. This has been Bill Weinberg on the Counter Vortex. As always, everything that I have to say is documented on my website, countervortex.org. Be in touch. Tell me what you think. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. Rant on you next time.